Thank you for checking out the sermon at Hope Church. We exist to connect people to live the life of a Jesus follower. We're excited that you came across this message and are tuning in. We just want to make you aware of a couple things before we get to the sermon. First, we'd love to connect with you. You can follow us on our social networks by searching at Hope Church LV. Also, be sure to check out our website, hopechurchonline.com. There, you have access to other resources, information about who we are, and where we're going as a church, as well as an opportunity to give to what God is doing through our church. Once again, thanks for checking out this sermon. Please let us know if there's any questions you have or any way we can come alongside you and your family. Enjoy the message. No great spiritual awakening has begun anywhere in the world apart from united prayer. Christians persistently praying for revival. When God plans to send a revival, he lays a burden for it on the hearts of those who make themselves available to him. True revival is not noisy, at least not at first. It usually begins in a hushed awe. Believers get convicted about sin and the seriousness of God's holiness. Weeping is heard before shouts. Repentance means turning from as much as you know of your sin to give as much as you know of yourself to as much as you know of your God. And as our knowledge grows at these three points, so our practice of repentance has to be enlarged. The life power and glory of the church is in prayer. The life of its members is dependent on prayer and the presence of God is secured and retained by prayer. Without it, the church is lifeless and powerless. This is revival. You and I, full of the Holy Spirit all the time, loving others and concerned for their salvation. family of faith, we have been for the last three weekends exploring together through the opening pages of the book of Acts, seeking to understand what it looks like when God moves. We've been looking at the movement of God as the early church was born there in the book of Acts and seeking to uncover some biblical principles or characteristics that kind of summarize or help us understand what it looks like when God moves. And in doing that, we've tried to be very clear and say each weekend, and I want to say it again as we bring this series to a close this morning, that there is not a formula that you can uncover in God's Word. There is not a three-step or four-step process that we can go to the Bible and pull these principles out, and if we'll just begin to practice these together, we can somehow manipulate God into moving on our behalf. That is not at all what we are saying or what we are seeking as we walk through this study together. We are not looking for ways for us to try to get God to move onto our agenda. That's not what we're doing. We cannot, listen very carefully, we cannot create a movement of God. What we have been trying to do as we walk through this series together 
is uncover some principles that describe what it looks like when God moves so that should God in His sovereign grace choose to move among us, we can be ready. We talked about having our sails up. Should the wind of God choose to blow, we desire at hope to have our sails so lifted up that we are ready for God to move among us. And so we've been uncovering some principles, and I want to just review quickly what we've already said. The first weekend, we, we said the first characteristic of God moving is this. When God moves, His people get desperate. Read that out loud off the screen with me. When God moves, His people get desperate. As we looked in Acts chapter 1 at the people of God, before this great movement of God, there was a people that had gotten desperate. They were passionate about God moving. They had an attitude of desperation, which is something that we need to look introspectively into our own lives and examine our own hearts. Do we have a passion for God to move? Do we think about God moving mightily in our lives, in our church, in our city, and in our world? But they didn't just have a passion for God to move. They had prayed for God to move. They didn't just have an attitude. They acted on that passion and they began to beg God to move mightily. And we said this. You look anywhere in the world or anywhere in history where you can find God moving mightily and you dig deep enough studying what's going on there, you will always find God's people desperately seeking Him in prayer. E.M. Bounds said it this way, Every great Christian achievement is really the history of answered prayer. You dig deep enough in a move of God, you will find God's people desperate to pray. So, here's what we're about to do. We're about to do something a little different at this point in the service, all right? Uh, Y'all okay with that? We're about to do something different. We've been talking about this for a few weeks. And this coming Tuesday night, we're going to practice this together as a family of faith. We're going to all come together, as many as are free Tuesday night, and we're just going to seek God together desperately in prayer. We're going to have a night of prayer. But we're not going to wait for Tuesday night. We're going to start right now. Here's what I'm about to ask you to do. If this morning, and I want you to be real clear what I'm about to say. I'm not looking for everybody to respond to what I'm about to say, but I'm about to ask some of you to come right here and pray. And here's who I want to come here and pray. If as I'm speaking to you right now, there's somebody that the Holy Spirit of God has laid on your heart and you know that they are desperate for God to move in their life. Maybe it's a family member. Maybe it's a co-worker. But you know this morning as you sit here, they need God to move. Maybe they're lost and they need Jesus. Maybe they are a believer and they are struggling in some area of sin or some vice or some weakness that is discouraging them and getting them down. Maybe it's a believer or somebody you know that has a health or a job situation and they need God to move. Let me tell you what we're about to do. We're about to ask God to move 
in their life. So if the Spirit of God has laid somebody on your heart, I want you to just start moving right now and come to this altar, and we're about to pray. Don't everybody feel like I got to go or they're going to? No. If the Spirit of God has put somebody on your heart, as you get here, just get as close as you can and kneel, and then we're about to pray over these that are coming right now. Let me tell you what we're about to do. We're about to do what we've been what we've been understanding the Word of God says. We're about to get desperate for God to move in some people's lives. Now, here's what you need to know. If you're sitting there, I want you to go ahead and bow. There, there are a lot of people right up here at the front right now, and every one of these people represents other people that desperately need God to move in their lives. Now, you just come. If you can't kneel, you feel free to just stand there where you are. If it gets too crowded. And listen, if you're already kneeling here, you begin right now. You start praying by name for that person. You just start praying by name for them. Just start crying out to God for them. You can pray out loud. You just start praying for them. Now, if you're sitting out here, here's what I want you to do. I'm about to pray for these that are here. I want you to, if you know somebody who's up here, Maybe you know one of the people sitting beside you or sitting just down. You know somebody. Somebody up here kneeling is in your small group. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to start praying right now for this person. Now, you may not know who they're praying for, okay? That's all right. Listen, the Holy Spirit of God does. The Spirit of God knows who they're praying for. You just start praying for them and say, God, whoever's on their heart, I'm agreeing with them right now. I'm joining in with them right now in prayer. Now, as we pray, I want you to think about something. What if God moved in all of these people's lives this week that are being cried out for right now? What if God this week began to just do the supernatural, unexplainable, only God can do this kind? What if God began to move in these people's lives this week? Do we believe God can do that? Do you believe God can do that? Listen, do you believe God can do that? Then let's cry out to God together right now, just all over this building. If you're comfortable doing it out loud, I want you to just pray out loud right now. Just begin to cry out to God for these that you own your heart. And then if you know somebody up here, you begin to pray. And then I'm going to lead us all in prayer. Let's pray together. God, right now, we come before you in the name and authority of Jesus Christ. And Lord, we come before you as men and women of God who are desperate for you to move. Lord, we understand today that God, unless you move in these situations, God, there is no hope, there is no help, there is no safety, there is no salvation, there is no redemption. God, unless you move, we are here this morning because we are desperate. Lord, we understand that apart from you, we can do nothing. And God, this morning, I pray for every one of these men and women who are here. God, I pray for every person that their cry represents. And Lord, we cry out to you in holy desperation that your spirit this week, Lord, even today as we're praying, 
God, right now, like we read in the Bible, where as your people sometimes prayed, you immediately begin to send out angels to begin to answer those prayers. God, right now, as we are crying out to you from heaven, would you move? Lord, would you move mightily? God, would you bring salvation to the lost? Lord, would you bring healing to those that are sick? Lord, would you bring deliverance to those that are in bondage? God, we ask you to move. And Lord, we ask you to move in such a way that you get all the glory, all the honor, and all the praise. Lord, we ask you to move in might. We ask you to move in power. Lord, we know we're right here today because we know that you have the power. We know that you have the authority. We know that you have the grace and the mercy and the love and the compassion. And we as your people today are crying out in desperation. Oh God, move. Lord, would you rend the heavens and come down. We bless you, oh God. We worship you, oh God. in the name of Jesus I pray now here's what we're going to do I'm going to invite you to begin to move back to your seat but as we move back to our seats here's what we're going to do we're going to thank God remember what we said week one we said that when we pray with desperation one characteristic of that is expectant prayer meaning that we're expecting God to move so as we move back to our seats I want everybody who's sitting and everybody who's walking back to your seat Here's what I want you to pray as you move back to your seat. God, thank you for what you're going to do. Lord, thank you for what you're going to do. God, I rejoice in you for what... Listen, God is going to move and we're going to trust Him. So as you move back, you just thank Him. God, thank you for what you're going to do. Call out that person's name. God, thank you for what you're going to do in their life. Lord, we trust you. God, we believe you for the supernatural, for what only you can do. God, we give it to you today. Now, here's what I want us to do all over the building. Just give God praise for what he's going to do. Amen? Just give him praise. Let me tell you what the Word of God says. In 1 Peter, the Bible says, Cast all your cares upon him because he cares about you. Let me tell you what just happened all over up here. People just took their burdens and in obedience to the word of God and a simple act of faith, we just rolled them onto him. We gave them to the only one who's big enough to carry them all. Amen. And let me tell you what we're going to do. We're going to trust God to move. Why do we do that? In obedience and in faith. It's what he told us to do. It's what he called us to do. And this morning in obedience and faith. We cried out to God. So we said, when God moves, His people get desperate. Lord, thank you today for what you are going to do. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. And all of us say together, amen and amen. Let me tell you the second thing we unpacked in week two. Here's the second characteristic. When God moves, His Spirit through His Word changes lives. I don't understand it, but God has chosen in His sovereignty to limit His activity to the prayers of His people. 
And what we've understood in the opening pages of the book of Acts is that when God's people get desperate and God's people cry out to him, God in his sovereignty then moves in response to the desperation of his people and his spirit through his word changes lives. And we talked about what that looked like last weekend. We said when life change begins to happen, there are two expressions of that. People begin to get right with God. We talked about repentance and what genuine repentance looks like, turning from sin and surrendering or, or confessing our sin and turning away from our sin and surrendering to a new way of life in Christ. When God moves, God for unbelievers, begins to call them to repentance and salvation. For believers, he begins to call them to repentance in their personal walk of holiness and pursuing Christ's likeness. But when God moves, there's genuine repentance. That's one of the evidences. J.D. Greer is a buddy of mine, and one of the things that J.D. wrote in a recent book that he wrote, he said throughout history, repentance of sin has always accompanied revival. When God moves, there's always genuine repentance of sin. But the second thing, we said not only do people get right with God, they begin to get right with one another. When God moves among us, it doesn't just affect this relationship. When God moves among us, it affects this relationship. It changes the way we relate to one another. But this morning, I want to give you the third and final characteristic, and we're going to unpack this one and be done with this series this morning. Here's the third one. When God moves... His glory is made known in the church and in the city. Read that out loud with me. When God moves, His glory is made known in the church and in the city. Did you notice something about each of these statements that we've unpacked? Listen to it. His people. His spirit. His word. His glory. When God moves, it's ultimately about Him and His glory. You see, sometimes we selfishly desire God to move for what we gain. There's a prayer that we want God to answer. Or there's an experience of spiritual growth that we want to have happen in our lives. Or there's a demonstration of supernatural power that we want to witness and be a part of. But ultimately, when God moves, it's not about us. It's about Him and His glory. You see, the bottom line is that you and I were made for the glory of God. Let me say that again. You and I were made for the glory of God. Now, we live in a day of man-centered Christianity where we think God exists for us. We think that, that God exists for our happiness or to meet our needs or to satisfy our wants or to be our help. But the real reality, the truth is that we exist 
for him and for his glory. And when we're crying out for God to move, it's not just so I can get what I want. It's not just so God can meet my need. It's not just so God can move in my life. When we are genuinely desperate and crying out to God for him to move, there is a hunger for the glory of God to be made known. It's like what the psalmist cried out in Psalm 79. Look at this verse on the screen. Psalm 79, verse 9. Look what he said. Help us, O God of our salvation. If you agree with that, say amen. Help us. But look what he says. For the glory of your name. And deliver us and forgive our sins. Amen. For your name's sake. It's about the glory of God. It's about His name being known. I love what John Piper said. He said, it is about the greatness of God, not the significance of man. God made man small and the universe big to say something about himself. For three weeks we've been talking about God moving. And we're asking God to move. And we want to see God move. But listen to me. We want to see God move. For His glory. For His namesake. Now I want to pick back up in our story in Acts chapter 2. And I want to show you where this characteristic is demonstrated as we continue in this story. Right at the end, Acts chapter 2, verse 46 and 47. Now, we have for the last three weekends used Acts chapter 1 and Acts chapter 2 as, as our text from which we've been looking for these principles. We're going to look at the last two verses again. We looked at them last week, but I want to look at them one last time. To end these two chapters, the Bible says, Day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God. Praising God. Say that out loud. Praising God. That's important. We're going to talk about that. And having favor with all the people. And the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. I want you to see two ways that God makes His glory known when He moves. Number one, when God moves, His glory is made known in the church. Should God in His sovereignty, should God in His grace choose to move, among us. 
Don't you hope that he does? Don't you pray that he does? Listen, should God choose to do that? Let me tell you what happens in us. Praise. Did you hear what it said? Day by day, continuing with one mind and in the temple. He said it doesn't matter where they were, whether they were at the temple square or whether they were meeting house to house. It didn't matter where they gathered. It didn't matter where they ran into another believer. Here's what he said happened. Whenever they got together, whenever one Christian ran into another Christian, they just couldn't keep it in. They couldn't contain it. God was moving so mightily. All they could do is just give God praise. They praised God. The word praise here is a word. I love the way Baker's Evangelical Dictionary defines it. Praise is to call attention to the glory of God. That's what's happening here. You see, when God moves, the heart response of His people is to overflow with praise to God. Let me say a couple of things about this praise. First of all, their praise was exclusive. The word in verse 47 for the word praising God here, it's a word that's used throughout the New Testament, but here's what you need to understand. It is used exclusively in the New Testament to refer to praising God. Here's what I mean. This word is never used in the Bible to refer to praising any other object or being but God and God alone. It is an exclusive word which means to call attention to the glory of God. Here's what that means. When God moved, they weren't praising the preachers. When God moved, They were not praising the singers. Nobody was leaving and saying, man, what a great sermon that was. Nobody was leaving the building and saying, man, have you ever heard anybody sing like that? Listen, when God moved, they weren't even praising the church. They weren't leaving and saying, man, I've never been to a church like that. Here's what the Bible says. When God moved, all they could do was talk about Him. They just praised God. They gave God the glory. They understood God was the one who was moving. Here's the reality. They had not simply attended a spiritual event. They had had a fresh encounter with the living God. And when they left, they weren't talking about the event. They were talking about the God that they'd met at the event. God moved. You see, when God moves, it becomes very obvious that what's taking place is only because of Him. Let me say that again. When it's really a move of God, it becomes very obvious that what is taking place is only because of Him. Now, God uses preachers. God uses prayer warriors. God uses singers and worship leaders. God uses choirs and band. God uses small group leaders. God uses many different people in many different ways. But everyone is aware when God moves that what's taking place can only be attributed to a move of Almighty God. 
If the glory goes to anyone but God, it's probably not really a move of God. Think about that. Think about the things sometimes that we say are movements of God and yet there's a personality-driven culture that is dominating or defining that movement. I, I believe what we learn here is if it's really a move of God, only God gets the glory. Their praise was exclusive. Let me say a second thing about their praise. Their praise was continuous. Day by day, continuing. He says, in the temple and house to house, they were praising God. Here's what that means. They didn't even wait for Sunday. This isn't the only place you can praise. Amen? They couldn't wait for Sunday. Every time they saw another Christian, all they could talk about was the glory of God, the move of God, what God was doing, how God was working, and they just praised God together. This didn't not only affect the fact that they couldn't wait to Sunday, it means that it permeated all kinds of time, meaning that it didn't matter if it was a good day or a bad day. They just praised God. How do the circumstances of your day or your week affect your ability to praise God? When God moves, it doesn't matter what's going on. You just praise Him. We take on the psalmist's attitude where he says, I will bless the Lord at all times, and His praise shall continually be in my mouth. On the good days and on the bad days, when I'm up here and when I'm down here, it doesn't matter why. Because God's moving, and because God is moving, I can give Him glory, and I can point people to the glory of God and call attention to what He's doing. Their praise was continuous. You see it fleshed out as you read on through the book of Acts. You find God's people in some very difficult circumstances, and yet over and over again you find God's people praising Him. Let me give you one example. If you fast forward all the way to Acts 16, there's a story where Paul and Silas are preaching the gospel in the streets, and a young demon-possessed girl gives her life to Jesus. They cast the demon out of this girl. She gives her life to Jesus. Now, what, what we understand as you read this story is there was some wicked business people that had been using this demon-possessed girl as kind of a show, and they were making money off of this demon-possessed girl. So when this demon-possessed girl gave her life to Jesus and was born again into relationship with God and the demons were cast out of her, they lost their business. And they got upset about it. And they went to the leaders of the city and they began to complain. And so the Bible says that they took Paul and Silas. Look at in Acts 16 verse 22. I'll put it on the screen. The crowd rose up together against them and the chief magistrates tore their robes off them and proceeded to order them to be beaten with rods. When they had struck them with many blows, they threw them into prison, commanding the jailer to guard them securely. And he, having received such a command, threw them into the inner prison. Listen, that was not a good place. And he fastened their feet in stocks. But, About midnight, Paul 
and Silas were, you read it, praying and singing hymns of what? And I love this line. And the prisoners were listening to them. I guess they were. They hadn't heard that in the inner sanctum of the prison before. I want you to get this picture. These guys, they were doing what Jesus said do. They were preaching the gospel. Lives were being changed. Supernatural activity was happening. And what happens to them? They wind up getting almost beat to death. Then they get thrown in prison. They get locked up in the inner parts of the jail. And the Bible says they, they put their feet in stocks so they can't even move. So here are Paul and Silas, bleeding, broken, bruised, chained together, standing there in the middle of the night, midnight. They look at each other. <laughs> Glory to God! I'd like to think that's what I would have done. But I hadn't been in near that bad a situation and some other stuff's come out of my mouth, right? Here's what we learn. When God is moving, we know that even the stuff that seems out of control is in His control and we can praise Him anyway. You see, when God's moving, we can praise Him anyway. When God moves, His glory is made known in the church. Their praise was exclusive. Their praise was continuous. And I don't have time to really unpack this point, but their praise was also complete, meaning that that it covered every spectrum. They, They praised God not just for what He was doing. They praised God for who He is. You see, sometimes our praise is just limited to the acts of God, what God is doing on my behalf. But they were praising Him not just for what He'd done. They were praising Him for who He is. Let me tell you a second thing. When God moves, not only is His glory made known in the church, when God moves, His glory is made known in the city. When God moves... His glory is made known in the city. You say, where do you see that in these verses? We'll look back at verse 47 again. Praising God and having favor with all the people. That little phrase all the people. It tells us something about who he's writing about. The word all is a word that that literally means whole. All of them. The word the people here, it's an interesting word. It's not a word that is always used to talk about people in the New Testament, but it is used commonly. It's a word that means people joined together by a common bond of society. It's the same usage of the word people like we use in the preamble to the Constitution of the United States when we say we, what? The people, right? We the people. When we're saying we the people, we're talking about us collectively as citizens of the United States of America. We the people. 
When the Bible here says all the people, it's using it that way, and it's here referring to all of the people in the city of Jerusalem. That was the societal bond that he was describing here. When the Bible says they were having favor with all the people, it means that what was happening, what God was doing, was not just impacting the church, but it was spilling out of the church and impacting the city. They were praising God. God was being glorified in His church. But also they were having favor with all of the people. What was happening, what God was doing among His people was spilling out and impacting and affecting the people of the city. So much so that I would even say this. If what we're calling a move of God in the church does not spill out and impact the city, it is probably not a move of God. There's a whole lot of stuff that we call God moving where we get all excited in the church, but it has no impact outside of those doors. Listen to me. When God moves, His glory is made known in the city. In the Middle Ages, we adopted an English word, church, from the German language. That's where the English word church really comes from, is from the German word kirsch or kirch. It's our English word church, and the word in German meant sacred place. It was in the Middle Ages that the church became known as a place where you would go. But in the Greek language, when the Bible translates a word church in the New Testament, The word church that that we commonly use today that refers to a place is not the best translation of this Greek word. The Greek word for the word church that we translate church is the Greek word ekklesia. It's a compound word. Ek is a preposition that means out of. The second part of that word, klesia, is a word that means to call out. You put the two words together, ecclesia, and it's the called out ones. You see, the church is really a gathering of people that are called out to engage in the mission of God in our city and the world. The church is not a place that you go to. The church is the people of God that have been called out by God to gather together and join in his mission of engaging the city and engaging the nations. And that's how the church began. Here in Acts chapter 1 and Acts chapter 2, it became about a church, a gathering of people that were on mission with God to impact their city and to impact their nations. You see it here as God was moving. God was moving mightily through his people, but it wasn't just a about his people, God was moving into the city and the whole city was being affected. Let me tell you a couple of ways the city was being affected. Number one, God gave his people grace with the city. They were praising God and having favor with all the people. The word favor here, it's the Greek word we get the word grace from. It's grace. It's goodwill. It's favorable disposition. God was so moving among his people 
that as they begin to live out their authentic faith, as they begin to live out genuine repentance, as they begin to live out in community, and Christ in them begin to live through them, and they begin to love each other and meet needs for one another and share with each other, the community around them was taking notice and being impacted. I read in Jim Simbola's book, the one many of you are reading, this little statement, it's not on the screen, but here's what he said. A church full of loving people has tremendous power to influence people for God. And that's what you see happening here in the book of Acts. These people were so moved by God. God so changed them. As they began to live their lives out in community, the city was being changed. The entire attitude of the city was changing towards this movement of Jesus' followers. And that's no small thing. I mean, you just read it in Acts chapter 2, verse 47. The whole city was demonstrating favor or grace towards these Christians. Back up 40 days in history, the whole city was not demonstrating grace to these people. 40 days earlier, this is the city where they lined the streets and with great passion and great zeal, they screamed out, crucify him. This is the very city where they demanded the execution of Jesus Christ. It's the very bloodthirsty city that watched as Jesus was brutally beaten before them and then given an alternative between a common criminal named Barabbas and Jesus. This is the very city that said, give us the criminal. Give us Barabbas and murder Jesus. This is the very city that the disciples were so terrified of that when Jesus was being crucified, other than John and the mother of Jesus, all the other disciples were in hiding for fear that they were going to be the next ones put on a cross. Now, 40 days later, having favor with all the people. You see, when God moves, and like we talked about last weekend, He begins to change lives. And one of the aspects of that is authentic community. We begin to live out our faith, loving one another, serving one another, meeting needs of one another. When that begins to happen, the community begins to take notice. And they say, wait a minute. There's something different about these people. There's something different about the way they're living their lives. These folks aren't what we thought they were. Made me think of a question. Is God moving in His people in Las Vegas in such a way that our city even notices? Robert Lewis wrote a powerful little book called The Church of Irresistible Influence. I read it when we first planted hope, and it had greatly impacted us as a, as a fellowship. In that book, he addresses the great disconnect that has taken place between the church and the city. He asks the question, If your church were taken out of its community tomorrow, Just 
use your imagination. Let's say tomorrow morning, Hope Church is gone. Would anybody but your members or attenders care or even notice? You see, when God moves, it spills outside the church. And people begin to see a difference in the way we live our lives, the way we live in community together. I want to read you a quote out of Robert Lewis's book. I think it'll speak to you. Listen to what he said. The world is tired. They're tired of the church impersonally talking it down and chewing it up. What the world waits to see is whether what we have is better than what they have. Just think what bridges we could build if we truly truly followed the example of the New Testament church. We would go beyond being seeker-sensitive to a new frontier of being community-admired. We would be known not just by the corner we inhabit, but by the city with which we interact. And people would be drawn to God Not because of the weekly show in our churches, but by the irrefutable lives we incarnate. That's having favor with all the people. God was moving so mightily. People's lives were being so radically changed that the city began to take notice. God gave His people grace with the city, but let me close by by sharing this. God gave the city grace through His people. You see, the lives that these people were living became a platform to share the gospel with other people. Because God had so changed them, their lives their lives together, the way that they were living out in community were so radically changed that it was opening the door for them to have gospel conversations with other people. That's why the Bible says the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. How was that happening? Well, well, let me try to illustrate it like this. When we first moved to Las Vegas, my kids were a lot younger than they are now and I did a lot of coaching ball. We spent a lot of time at ball fields, football fields, baseball fields, basketball courts, and got involved in in doing a lot of coaching and stuff with our little kids and had a lot of fun doing that. But we built a lot of relationships. In the first three, four, five years that we were here in Las Vegas, a lot of the people that my family personally led to Jesus happened through those coaching relationships. We were just building relationships, coaching ball and playing in ball leagues. And through those relationships, we'd get to know people. They would, uh, they would see our family. They'd begin to ask questions about who we were, why we were here. And there was one particular story of a, a guy that, that I met through coaching. And we'd been coaching together for about a year and involved together. And um, our families had gotten to be, be good friends. And I'll never forget, on a, on a, I think it was a Thursday night, <coughs> I was down at one of the ball fields coaching football. And I was walking across the field, and from probably a football field and a half away, probably a couple hundred yards away, I see this guy. He's just making a beeline straight towards me. Now, we've been, like I said, friends for about a year. We've been coaching together for about a year. He's making a beeline. I mean, you can just tell he is on a mission. He is determined. He's walking right through other people's practices, you know, and he's just coming straight towards me. I'm thinking, man, what in the world is this about? So he gets right up to me, and he says, man, i got to ask you a question. 
It's like, all right, fire away. What's up? He said, man, I have a, I've got a beautiful wife. I've got wonderful children. I've got a great family. I have an incredible job. I love what I do. have a lot of success in what I do. But he said, Vance, I've known you and watched your family now for a year. And he said, you have something that I don't have. Would you tell me what that is? And we got to have a long conversation. Listen, I don't say that to put myself on a pedestal. Listen, I've blown it as many times as I've gotten it right, okay? So, listen, if you've ever been around me coaching ball and stuff, you know I've blown it as many times as I've gotten it right, just like all the rest of us, all right? But I share it with you because here's what I'm saying. It was the life that my family was living together that became a platform that opened the door for a conversation about the gospel. That man, his family, they they came to know the Lord and... Uh, came to know Jesus. It's a wonderful testimony, wonderful story. But that's exactly what was happening in the book of Acts. These people had been so changed by God, and now they start living in community together. They're sharing with one another. They're selling what they've got. They're meeting needs. They're loving each other. They're caring for the sick. This dynamic, radical community, they're praising God. They've always got joy. And not just on Sundays, the Bible says day by day by day, house to house in every neighborhood, they're living this way. And neighbors and people in the city were watching it going, man, there's something different about these people. They were extending grace and favor. And it was opening conversations to say, what is it that you have? And as they would ask that question, people would begin to share the gospel. They would tell them about Jesus Christ. And moment by moment, day by day, people were being saved. That's why the Bible says the Lord was adding to their number day by day. You ever wondered what that would look like if it happened here? What if our phone lines were just full this week? You calling in saying, hey, pastor, you're not going to believe what happened today at work. I got to lead somebody to Jesus. You're not going to believe what happened today at Walmart. I got to lead somebody to Jesus. You're not going to believe what happened today, pastor. I'm sitting in the waiting room of the doctor's office. I'm reading my Bible, and somebody looks at me and says, what are you reading? And I got to lead them to Jesus right there in the doctor. What if all week long this week you were just bringing people to faith in Jesus Christ, having an opportunity to share the gospel? Listen, that's what happens when God moves. And the Bible says the Lord was adding to their number. You ever thought about who all was in that number? People in the city. Let me tell you a story of just a few of them. One of them was a man named Philip. We don't know when. If it was on the first day when 3,000 came to Christ or if it was one of the preceding days, following days when... They were leading people to Jesus day by day, but somebody met a man named Philip, and God used them to share the gospel with Philip. Philip gave his life to Jesus Christ, born again into relationship with God, and Philip begins to preach the gospel. We know about him because in Acts chapter 6, the the, the community of believers in Jerusalem set him apart as one of the first deacons or servants there inside the fellowship that were meeting needs and, and caring for widows in their fellowship, and Philip was a servant in the church who was full of the Holy Spirit of God and faithful. And Philip began to preach the gospel. And he went into a community called Samaria where the Jews and Samaritans didn't get along well at all. And yet Philip feels called to go to them. And he does exactly what Acts 1.8 said. You'll receive power and go to Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria. And Philip goes to Samaria starts preaching the gospel in Samaria. And the Bible says many in Samaria were coming to Christ. Many in this city, in this village were 
following Jesus. And then God spoke to Philip one day and said, Philip, I want you to leave Samaria and I want you to go out to a desert road. Now that sounds a little bit weird. I mean, you'd think God's using me here, people being saved. Let's just stay right here, build a whole ministry platform, and let's camp right here. But God said, I want you to go out to a desert road. So Philip goes out to a desert road. And he's on this desert road all by himself. You can read about it in Acts chapter 8. And on this desert road all by himself, Philip's just standing there, and all of a sudden this chariot comes by, and the Lord speaks to Philip and says, I want you to run up alongside the chariot. So here's Philip. Imagine this now. Here's this chariot. Philip's just running alongside the chariot. And he hears the guy inside the chariot reading the book of Isaiah. And he says, hey, you understand what you're reading? Guy says, I, how can I understand what I'm reading unless somebody tells me what it's about? Philip said, I can tell you. He said, well, get in here. So Philip's like, thank God, right? So he, he gets in the chariot with him. The Bible says, starting in Isaiah, Philip explains Jesus to him. The man is from Ethiopia. He's passing through Jerusalem on the king's business from Ethiopia. He gives his life to Jesus Christ, born again. Philip baptizes him right there along this desert road. They find some water. He baptizes this man and sends him back. Listen, the first follower of Jesus on the continent of Africa came through Philip's testimony. Now listen. Why is that significant? Because here's all the Bible says about him. He's just one of the ones added to the number. Who's the next person you're going to win to the Lord? Maybe it'll be somebody that gets to share the gospel, somebody that takes the gospel to a place it's never been before, just like Philip did. Or another story is another one of the ones that got added to the numbers, a man named Paul. You read about him in Acts chapter 7. He starts with the name Saul. You find him in Acts chapter 7. Here's what he's doing. One of Philip's friends that got saved was a man named Stephen. Stephen preaches the gospel in Acts 7. Guess what the city of Jerusalem decides to do with him? Put him to death. So they stone Stephen to death. And there's a young man who's holding everybody else's coats while they're stoning Stephen to death. You know who it is? It's Saul. Saul then hears the gospels, born again into relationship with God, changes his name to Paul. Paul writes two-thirds of the New Testament, becomes the greatest missionary that we've ever known since the Lord Jesus Christ himself and begins to speak the gospel all over the world. In Acts chapter 16, we read about Paul taking the gospel to a city called Philippi. You know what that was? That's the first time the gospel ever went to the continent of Europe. So what's happening in Jerusalem? They're sharing the gospel. First person to take the gospel to Africa. Now first person to take the gospel to Europe. In Philippi, a woman gets saved. Paul leads her to Jesus. Her name's Lydia. Lydia, you can read about her in Acts chapter 16. Lydia gives her life to Jesus. Lydia is a significant businesswoman in the community. She's a seller of purple dye, made a lot of resources, had a great home there. And so she used her home as a platform for Paul's ministry to preach the gospel. The church at Philippi, we read about in the book of Philippians, partnered in Paul's ministry. As she began to use her home as a platform, the gospel began to spread throughout Europe. You say, why is that significant? Because a few centuries later, in 1784, there was a group of Baptists who decided that they would get together and begin to pray every first Monday of the month, asking God to move like he'd never moved before. It's on the continent of Europe. How did the gospel get there? Somebody shared it with Paul. Paul took it to Europe. Paul shared it with Lydia. Lydia's house became a platform. Now in 1784, a little group of Baptists start praying for God to move mightily. There was a young man as a part of that prayer meeting 
whose name was William Carey. He was a shoemaker by trade. He made shoes. William Carey got so burdened by this movement of prayer in 1784 on the continent of Europe that William Carey surrendered his life to take the gospel to the nation of India. And William Carey became the father of what we know as the modern missionary movement over the last 300 years. The last 300 years of the gospel going to the ends of the earth like it never had before began because a shoemaker was moved to pray in 1784. But you can't stop there. You've got to go back to Lydia in the first century using her house as a platform. But you can't stop there. You've got to go back to Paul who heard the gospel in Jerusalem. But you can't stop there. You've got to go back to some believers that heard the gospel in Acts chapter 2, surrendered their lives to Christ, began to be so radically changed by the gospel that as they lived their lives, it opened up platforms and they shared their faith and God impacted the city. Here's the question I want you to think about. Who's next? Day by day, the Lord was adding to their number. Look around you. You're in the number. You didn't know you was in the Bible, did you? The Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. Listen, when I got saved, I became a part of the number. Listen to me. There's a whole lot more in this city that God wants to add to the number. And we don't know who's going to be the next Philip, Paul, Lydia, William, Carey. We don't know. But God's placed you where he's placed you because there's people he wants to impact with the gospel and he desires to use you to do it. When God moves, his glory is made known in the church and in the city.